This program is a part of the Full Press Radio Network. Find this and all of Full Press Coverage's shows on fullpressradio.com or free on the Full Press Coverage app, available now on the Apple and Google Play stores. This is Hall of Famer Alan Fanica, and you're listening to Ira and Clark on the iTest for Two. Well, normally we'd be talking about the start of the NFL season this week on the eye test for two, but this is no ordinary week. It's not for the NFL, not for any pro sports league, and certainly not for this country because Saturday marks the 20th anniversary of 9-11, a day when this country was under attack from terrorists who killed over 3,000 people, most of whom worked in the World Trade Center in New York City. And because of that, we dedicate this week's broadcast, and I say broadcast because there will be another, uh, the eye test for two, to that event. Now, Ira, Ian, uh, I lived in Manhattan then, and my wife worked in the NFL office then with and for today's guest, Mr. Joe Brown, former executive VP in the league office, uh, Paul Tagliabue's, Commissioner Paul Tagliabue's first lieutenant on Park Avenue, and someone who spent 50 years, that's five zero years in the league office, the longest tenure of any NFL employee ever. Joe is also a recipient of the Pro Football Hall of Fame's Ralph Hay Award, which is given periodically to persons who made significant and innovative contributions to pro football. So I guess what I'm telling you guys is Joe Brown, very special guest of ours. And Joe, first of all, thanks for joining us. And, and secondly, um, because you were there, as I mentioned, my, my wife worked in that office with you and for you. Um, I'd like you to take us back and inside 280 Park Avenue, which was the address then, when you first realized your city was under attack. And I guess what I'm asking, Joe, is how chaotic was it inside the league office then? No, I understand the question, Clark. The, the, uh, uh, we had played the, the Giants' Denver game the night before, Monday night. And frankly, the day before, on that Sunday, uh, I had been down in the Rose Garden, down at the White House, uh, and George W. Bush uh, flipped the coin to start uh, all the one o'clock games. And it, it was an idyllic uh, setting. The president was great. Uh, and then two days later, all hell broke loose. Uh, I was in the office that morning. I came up from having breakfast. And the receptionist uh, said that a plane had just crashed into the trade center. And I know it may sound strange to people outside of football, but the first thing I thought of was in 1975 or 76, I was down in Baltimore, maybe you guys were too, when that plane crashed into Memorial yeah. Stadium after the playoff game. And I was speaking to Chuck Knoll afterwards, who had just won the game, who was a pilot himself. We went running out to the field from the interview room to see the plane. And it was this little single engine plane up on the top deck of the stadium, as you recall. Yep. And so that was what was in my head when the receptionist said a plane had crashed into the, into the tower. I went into my office, turned on the TV, and unfortunately uh, saw the second plane go into the tower. 
Um, and old Tagliabu, who had been on a conference call, uh, got off and he came down the hallway and said, this is no accident. Uh, this, is, this, this is terrorism and we're in for, we're in for hell. And uh, we had a meeting, um, we had a meeting, this was, this was after, after nine, the towers, as you guys know, started coming down between uh, 10 and 10.30, the two towers. And 11 o'clock, we had a senior staff meeting and uh, Paul showing his leadership once again, uh, and also showing a soft side of him, which some of the newer employees had not seen, frankly. But Paul said, we've got to find out if any of the employees are, are missing family members, if any of them work down there. And we've got to check also at the same time, uh, check our building to make sure that the security is safe and that if there is an evacuation, we get all the employees out. Um, and then he told the senior staff, get your department employees and ask them uh, how they're going to get home and do they have any connections, any family, any friends that if they can't get home, uh, where can they stay in the city? And uh, finally, he, he appointed floor supervisors. And uh, unfortunately, as you know, Clark, Ira does too. Uh, unfortunately, we had two of our employees who had spouses down at the Trade Center. Uh, Ed Ty was one whose wife was down there. Julia Collins, who was out in Denver, uh, she had gone out for the Monday night game and it was her husband that was down there. And unfortunately, we lost um, both, both spouses, but a lot of young people, including your bride, uh, Clark, but a lot of young people, uh, very, very, uh, very nervous and very emotional. Uh, and I get emotional when I think about it 20 years ago. And uh, my wife, Karen, was working down at Scholastic Publishers downtown. And she, she was up for a breakfast outside on the roof of the building. And she saw the second plane go in. And she eventually walked 40 blocks, 50 blocks, whatever it was, up to our office with one of her colleagues. And there was dust all over all over both of them. So, so it was, the irony is that it was supposed to be a celebratory day because we had a, a, uh, an owner's dinner planned that night at the 21 Club to celebrate yet another court victory over the Raiders that summer. And uh, Bill Bidwell for one was already in the city uh, and others were supposed to be flying in uh, that Tuesday for the Tuesday night at dinner. Um, and Karen and I eventually got home with, I, I parked on top of Grand Central Station, which was shut down um, for security purposes up until early evening. The subways, Clark, as you remember, were shut down for right. hours. And as someone who was born and raised in New York, the, the frightening thing was when they said, that the bridges, the tunnels lead in and out of Manhattan. 
uh, were shut down for a period of time. And that really was a stark reminder that Manhattan is literally an, an island. Uh, and we were cut off at that point. Joe, you mentioned that some of the younger employees were nervous and anxious. And I know my wife was too. She was scared, frankly. Um, but she said the one thing she always admired about you was how you could rise above the fray and, and you provided leadership in times when it was needed most. Were you nervous and anxious during that time? Because it wasn't just New York, it was Washington and then Flight 93 in, in the fields of Pennsylvania. It, it just seemed like it was an all out attack. Um, were you anxious? Oh yeah, absolutely. When, when Karen came up, as I said, my wife, when she came up in the middle of the afternoon and there was dust all over her dress and, and it was from walking, walking away from the trade towers up toward Man Midtown Manhattan, where we were, mm -hmm. and, uh, heavy, 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 heavy dust. And also uh, our older son, Tim, uh, was in the city that day. Uh, and we wanted to make sure he was safe uh, because we, you just did not know. You know there was so, so much uncertainty, you just did not know. So we, we eventually got home that night, came in the next morning, and and uh, uh, Tagliabue was in early as he usually was. Uh, Bill Bidwell was there, the owner of the Cardinals. Woody Johnson, the owner of the Jets, was there. And we had, we had conference calls uh, with our owners. Uh, the clubs have been calling, wanting to know if everyone was okay, number one. But number two, they wanted to know what we were going to do about games the following weekend, and, and uh, uh, he outlined he outlined five options for the games uh, that we would play them as scheduled. Uh, some of our owners who had served in the military, uh, they were very strong uh, advocates to we're not going to let the SOBs, meaning the terrorists. Uh, change our way of life. That's what they want to do. We should play the games. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was on the table. Um, uh, also, one of the options was to postpone it and play the games on the wild card weekend. Uh, another option was to postpone the Sunday games and play them all uh, that following Monday, the 17th. Uh, um, next, the last option was the cancel all the games and just have a 15 game schedule that that year and then lastly uh, there was talk about flipping uh, some of the games for instance the uh, Packers were due to play the Giants that Sunday uh, at Giant Stadium uh, same thing with there were games scheduled at home for both Washington and Pittsburgh two areas that were most affected in addition to New York so there was talk about flipping those the sites of those games. But as we know now, uh, Tagli made the decision on Thursday morning that we were not and could not play the games that, uh, that weekend. Um, Clark, the one thing I would say is that Carl Rove, Carl Rove was, was with President Bush and he, Rove called uh, Tagli to see what we were going to do on Wednesday, on September 12th, what we were going to do about the games that weekend. 
and uh, Paul was on with one owner or another. He said, you take the call. And I knew Carl, uh, know Carl. And he said, what are you guys going to do about the games? And I said, well, what, what do you think? What do you think? He said, no, 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 it's your decision. But the president and everyone down here, we want to get the country back on its feet as quickly as possible. And that was a reminder, that was a flashback to when President Kennedy was killed. And uh, Pete Rosell, who was the commissioner at the time, he, uh, he called uh, his former college uh, classmate, Pierre Salinger, who at this point was, um, was President Kennedy's press secretary. And Pierre said that he thought the, the, the president's family would want us to play the games and get things back to normal as quickly as possible back in 1963. And I can understand both Salinger's thinking and I can understand Carl Rove's thinking, but it just, Paul made the right, Paul made the right decision in postponing uh, that next weekend's games. It was a time for mourning, a time for remembrance. Uh, and that's what we all did. Joe, in the, uh, in the immediate aftermath of the attack, Joe, in those next 48 hours, Paul was weighing his options under a lot of pressure to make a quick decision. Joe, how much did the stance, the solidarity of the Giants and the Jets, the, the teams uh, immediately affected, uh, what impact did they have on, uh, on Paul's ultimate decision? Right. That's a good point, Ira, because one of the first calls we got on, uh, we, Tabby Boo got on Tuesday, on September 11th, was from Gene Upshaw because his kids, his boys, were in school uh, right near the CIA building. And so he had gone over to get them and get them home safely. And then he called Paul. And as you guys know, uh, Paul and uh, Gene had an excellent relationship, excellent working relationship. And Gene was, was asking uh, what Paul thought we were going to do. Um, Gene said he was going to canvas his clubs and, and his teams and his player reps, which he did. And the next day he came back and he said, there are teams that want to play and there are teams just, such as the Giants and the Jets uh, who say no way. And so it was weighing both of those factors. Um, ultimately, um, and you had some owners, as I said earlier, you had some owners who thought we should play. Um, but ultimately, it was, it was Paul's decision, speaking to some of, his, some of the committee chairmen, like Jerry Richardson and Dan Rooney and Wellington Merrick, uh, it was it was Paul's decision not to play, but the 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 players the players certainly uh, weighed in and understandably so because from Giants Stadium, where both the Jets and the Giants played their home games, um, you could see the smoke clearly across the river into Manhattan, and it was scary, scary sight, scary sight. Joe. Um... In a way, and I didn't think you needed any reminder of it, Joe, at the time in 2001, but you got the White House is calling, Joe. Other league commissioners are calling into the NFL office. And in a way, Joe, I mean, 
Park Avenue became the nerve center uh, for sports and maybe even more than sports in the aftermath in a sense. So, Joe, did that kind of drive home just um, what kind of role the, the National Football League played in, in, uh, in getting this nation back together? Um, yeah, the, the getting the nation back together might, might be a, a, a bit of an overstatement. Although, as I say, we had people inside the ownership circle and, and uh, who, who said, we've got to continue. We've got to keep going forward. But to your point, Ira, about other leagues, I mean, Bud Selick must have called uh, a dozen times wanting to know what we were going to do on, on the following Sunday because it was, you know, September. It was September baseball. They had a lot of big games coming up. And the college commissioners also were calling in wanting to know what we were going to do. And it, it was a, it's the leadership role, role that uh, Paul uh, and Pete before him, Pete Roselle, always understood that, you know, we were fortunate to be uh, the fans' favorite sport, to be number one. But with that comes a tremendous uh, amount of, of responsibility. And when we were, in, we were in the office late Wednesday night, September 12th, uh, Roger, who was Roger Goodell, who was number two at the time, Paul and myself. And we, we, we left that night. We told Bud Selick that we would call him before we announced the decision the next day. And it was 70-30 that we were not going to play, but it wasn't 100%. Um, and so the next morning, Paul, we got up very early that morning. Uh, Paul came in and said, there's no way we can play. There's no way we can play. And we had a conference call, 10, 15, 10, 30 with, uh, with the owners. And Paul asked me to get Bud Selig and tell him before we, we felt we owed it to him to tell him what we were going to do. And I remember <laughs> the only humorous thing that occurred that week. But I remember speaking to Bud, uh, Bud's longtime secretary, who said that he, the commissioner baseball commissioner was not in the office and he was out getting his hair cut. And, and <laughs> he either didn't want to or couldn't get a hold of him. We had the conference call. We had the I said, I don't want to tell her. I didn't want to tell her the decision. Uh, I wanted to tell him. And uh, so we made the announcement uh, publicly after the, we spoke to our owners but I never did reach Bud that day, which I felt bad about. I still feel bad about. But, uh, but they they wound up uh, canceling a number of their games as well. Uh, there were some college football games, but most of the college conferences, uh, as you guys know, did not play that that Saturday. Joe, if I remember right, I don't think Bud's haircuts took very long, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> was, Bud, Bud Steelick was all right. He was all right. He, he, uh, he was on. We'll, we'll do another podcast on Bud. <laughs> it's coming up next week. <laughs> we're with Joe Brown, former executive VP in the league, and we're talking about the 20th anniversary of nine. And, and Joe, uh, since I'm Captain Obvious on this podcast, I'll ask you the obvious question. But you've talked about Paul Tagliabue weighing the pros and cons of, of playing that weekend. How much did he anguish over that? And and now. 20 years later, 
how do you think he looks back on that decision? Because you know him as well as anyone other than probably Chan, his wife, but you know him so well. Um, how much did he anguish over that? Uh, he did. He, he did. Um, uh, I'm pleased for him that we were able to work things out uh, and play uh, that weekend's games at, at the end of the year. And we worked out with the, the uh, car dealership, the car dealers rather, the car dealers, the National Retail Car Dealers Association, who got more publicity during that time than they ever did in their existence because they had New Orleans booked, as you recall. I do. They had New Orleans booked uh, the, the week after we were scheduled to play the Super Bowl. And so if we pushed back the game, uh, it would affect their convention. And we worked with them and they, they, they played ball with us. I remember we went down, we picked them up in Washington. We flew the leader down to a, a St. Clone game. But I, I'm just pleased for Paul. It was the right thing to do, not to play the games. But yeah, he, hey, he's an emotional Italian guy from New Jersey. And uh, although sometimes he can come across as aloof, uh, down deep, he, he anguished over what the right thing to do was. Because as I say, you had some owners saying, Damn it, let's play. If that sounds like Alex Spano's block, that's who I was imitating. <laughs> Damn it, let's play. Uh, and, uh, and, and teams that said, let's play. And, and the league was divided, both in the ownership ranks and, and among, the, among the player ranks. Well, nearly two weeks later, as you mentioned, play did resume. And I remember going to the Giants-Chiefs game in Kansas City and seeing you there, and we spoke before the game, and um, it was the most memorable athletic event, sporting event I've ever witnessed, where the entire country um, stood by and along with New York and the New York Giants. It was an extraordinarily emotional day, Joe, I think, um, not only on the field, but probably in the press box too, and in the stands. Is there anything in particular that you recall from that afternoon that stays with you? Yeah, that well, yeah. One thing, Clark, and you're right. It was it was it was some afternoon uh, to that that did unite the country. I, I I said about to Ira before that perhaps it was an overstatement about uniting the country. Well, that game did unite the country. I'm convinced of that. Me too. And when when the Giants took the field for warmups. And, and as you guys know, the, the Kansas City fans are great. They're always in their seats early. But when the Giants took the field for warm-ups, everyone in the stands stood up and cheered. That was the first time I'd ever seen the visiting team get such a reception as that. Um, and Wellington, Wellington Mara and Lamar Hunt, who, who were two strong advocates for Paul and two members of the kitchen cabinet, if you will, uh, mm -hmm. They were on the field. Uh, I have a photo behind me in my office of on the field with myself and, and Lamar Hunt, the great Lamar Hunt, Hall of Famer, uh, and Gene Upshaw, the union leader and Hall of Famer, and now Paul Dabibu, uh, the commissioner and Hall of Famer. Uh, but it was a special, special day. I remember they in the stands, they had a boot. Uh, it was a tradition. I think it was a tradition in Kansas City, but they 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 had boots in different sections of the stadium and passed the big boot around 
with people making donations uh, for the first responders uh, back in New York. It was special. Joe, um, what would you tell people uh, about uh, the memorial site in, in Lower Manhattan, the Freedom Tower, uh, people that may be planning to come into New York to visit? Um, what do you feel, uh, what kind of job did, uh, did people do in, in uh, commemorating uh, the tragic event? Yeah, we, 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 have, we have the 9-11 Museum and then we have the monument down downtown. Um, I've often said that I, I was privileged years ago to go over to uh, to go over to Normandy and and to see uh, the historic site there and of course the cemetery. Uh, and I've often said to many, many of my friends that every American should go there uh, to appreciate what our military leaders and our military men did uh, when they stormed the beach there. And I feel the same way about the 9-11 Museum. Uh, I'd encourage all your listeners uh, to make a trip, uh, a special trip, it's okay because it's a special uh, place, but to make the trip down to the museum uh, and, and, to see, and to see the monument. Um, and this, this uh, Saturday, 9-11, uh, Clark as a New Yorker knows that they have the twin peaks of light, the blue light uh, from down there that you can see from almost every part of the New York metropolitan area. And that's a very, very special thing as well. And Joe, last one for me, thanks for your time, Joe. Uh, in a sense, Joe, looking back two decades, uh, is it an overstatement, Joe, to say that maybe that's the last time in the aftermath of 9-11 that, you know, this was kind of a unified country and politics went to the side and, and differences went to the side and, and just talk about the unity uh, that was felt in the aftermath of 9-11. Of no, you're right about that in terms of, I remember in the days and even the weeks subsequent to 9-11, that there really was a closeness to the city. You know, we're, we're such an international, uh, international area that you can walk down Fifth Avenue or, or sit down in the park. And oftentimes you hear every language, sometimes not English, but you hear every other language. And 9-11, and seemingly brought everyone together. It brought everyone together. Uh, and, and it lasted for a period of time. Um, nothing lasts forever. And that feeling did not last forever. But as I say, in the days and weeks, and probably months subsequent to 9-11, there was a sense of unity, uh, not only among New Yorkers, not only among Americans, but among the many uh, visitors that we have uh, in the city every year. Joe, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, we're speaking with Joe Brown, former league executive, the NFL. Couldn't agree with you more on that. That following weekend, so the weekend when games were canceled or postponed, we went to Central Park and went to the Sheep Meadow in Central Park. And you know that where there are hundreds, sometimes a couple of thousand people um, 
sun themselves or throw the football around or discus or, or, or frisbees or things like that. Um, but um, we were there that that weekend and we had taken a dog, I think, from somebody and taken him there. And um, a fire truck went down uh, West Side Highway and it had the American flag streaming from the back and the entire group of people, hundreds, thousands, whatever it was that were there in the sheep meadow stood and applauded. Never forgot that. Never forgot that. And I, I, I think about that today. And I do think I was right. I just saw this country as sort of one. Everyone sort of rallying around New York. And I do remember some saying to us at that time, you know, you got to get out. You got to get out of New York because this is going to happen again. And I said, we're not leaving. We're not going to leave. Are you kidding me? No one's going to do this. To we're not going to leave. And I felt that spirit in that in the city. And I thought that's what makes New Yorkers so resilient and I'm so proud to be one of uh, those people because I never lived in Manhattan before I married my wife and I was so glad to get to know the city and know what made New Yorkers so strong and resilient and tough and and, and I saw it then I, I've seen it in blackout since but it's a, it's a special breed of people and I'm really proud to have called New York my home. Um, Joe I've, I've got a couple last things for you and, and again like Dara said thank you so much. Um, you mentioned your wife Karen she worked near Ground Zero in Lower Manhattan. Uh, how did this affect her then, and and how do the two of you remember it today? Well, she, they she was she was down on, on Broadway mm -hmm. uh, where Scholastic is, and they didn't go back for a long period of time, several weeks, and uh, I had to, I had to. I worked, I had to work number one, but number two, we were out, we lived out in Long Island at the time and I had to make sure it kept her spirits up because it, 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 I saw it on TV. I saw the second plane come in on TV. She yeah. saw it in person. She saw it in person from the roof of her building. And it was, it was an emotional thing. And I think she was not alone. There were so many thousands of, of, of New Yorkers affected by losing friends, losing family members. The one thing, Clark, I, I talk about living on Long Island. I remember when we, we went home that night, drove home and we drove by the train station and there were dozens of cars sitting there. And it, it looked odd that hour of the night for dozens of cars sitting there. But unfortunately, what it was, it was the, our neighbors, our neighbors, some of whom, many of whom we didn't know, but our neighbors who had driven to the train station that morning, parked the car like I did every day and took the train into the city, yeah. never, to, never to return, yeah. never to return. That, that, that's still, in my, that's still a, a picture I can recall. Yeah, and I recall the Giants mentioning something about that near their practice facility at the, the Meadowlands um, and, and seeing those cars that sat there for weeks and were ultimately towed. The last one for you, Joe, is I know you've got grandkids. What do you tell them about this day? Um, they're, they're, they're too young uh, at this point, Clark, I think. And <clears throat> they're down in Nashville, which seems like a whole different world. <clears throat> Excuse me, a different world from New York. They were both born in New York. They live down in Nashville now, but eventually they'll want to know and I'll want to tell them about 9-11. Uh, of course, I, I don't want to usurp their parents' 
their parents uh, speaking to them about it. Um, but uh, it, it, hopefully it's a once in a generation, a multi-generation occurrence. And uh, we just have to be proud to be Americans, be, be tough, be, be proud to be Americans and, uh, and, and look, out for, look out for one another uh, as much as possible. Joe Brown, thanks so much for the time as always and in your memories of an event that none of us who lived through it can and, and, and really should forget. We shouldn't forget this at all. Thanks, Joe. You're, you're welcome. As you can see, I still get some, I still get emotional over it, but that's what happens when you're an Irishman. <laughs> yeah, well, so do I. I think that's what happens when you live in Manhattan. But Joe, yeah. thanks so much. Really appreciate thanks, it. Yeah. All right, man. You're welcome. Okay. I was former NFL executive Joe Brown in Ira. I really um, enjoyed listening to him speak about a, a horrific event, but he was great with his detail and he was emotional, but anyone who was there at the time would, would be emotional and um, understandable. I, I thoroughly enjoyed listening to him. Can you, uh, Clark, can you imagine the pressure, the intense no. pressure on Tagliabue in, in the immediate aftermath? Everybody's calling him, including the White House, yeah, because the NFL... Clark sets the agenda yeah. in, in a lot of ways. Nobody's calling Bud Selig. They're calling yeah. Tagliabue. Well, and he and meant, he's, get, yeah. he's getting it from all sides. And yeah. he mentioned, you know, how they play after the assassination of JFK. They played two days later. That was 63, but also in World War II, FDR said, you know, pro sports league should continue. And they did. They, they continued. But um, Pete Rozelle did say later that was his biggest regret. He should not have played that weekend. And I thought Tagliabue made absolutely the right call. And you were dead on, Ira, when you mentioned the Jets and the Giants. They both had an enormous impact on that decision, especially the Jets. They were first out of the box. I think it was Testaverde. It was a player rep at that time. said, I'm not playing because they were going to Oakland that week. He was, I'm not flying to Oakland. You're going without your quarterback. And the team said, we're not going to do anything. Um, we're going to stay right here. Uh, Ira, um, final thoughts? Uh, Clark, I, I think the point you just made is, is the most important one. And I don't think people put enough uh, emphasis on it. The Giants and the Jets, Clark, there was a chance there was going to be a standoff. Yeah, that's right. Where the league, where the league was going to say the games will go on as scheduled and the Giants weren't going to show up for their game. And Clark, the league had to avoid that kind of a situation. It had to and did. And to it's everybody's credit, to the league's credit, to the players' credit. But they did what I think was the right thing. You know what, Ira, it's hard for me to think of, but it was 20 years ago. I mean, it's just like 20 years ago. I, I, and and I, I couldn't agree more with what you mentioned to Joe. I remember how unified this country was in the wake of that event. And I'll be honest, I, I wish we were that unified today. And um, Clark, one of the subtle things that comes out of this uh, podcast, among many, is that um, you were jogging and then went to a health club. That's outstanding, Mr. Judge. Outstanding. Yeah, but that's how, it, it, you know, I, I just didn't know what was going on because you felt like this couldn't happen, you know, and, um, but it did. And, and uh, I'll never forget it. And I hope uh, none of us do. Anyway, that's going to do it for today, uh, but not for this week because we have former Giants running back Tiki Barber coming up later. Yes, Tiki Barber to recall what was happening inside the Giants and pro football in the wake of 9-11. So please tune in for that on, on what are, where are the eye test for two, baby. The eye test for two. You got it, Ira. Thanks so much for listening.